1: Hello there, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Welcome to the 34th episode of PCPC. For episode 34, we're going to be taking a look at Southwest Airlines Flight 1455, a scheduled flight from Las Vegas, Nevada to Burbank, California, during the early evening of March 5th in the year 2000. Today's episode's coming to you from San Francisco, where I'm going to be stationed for the next few months. There's no guest on today's show. The episode's going to be my first ever solo flight. I'm here in the proverbial podcasting cockpit all alone. It's a bit terrifying and isolating, but on the plus side, we're just going to hop straight into the story after a few brief announcements. First off, I'd like to thank the PCPC Patreon crew, Episodes have been difficult to crank out in a timely manner given my work schedule, but still, many people keep on signing up for the PCPC PC, Patreon page. Just want to take a moment and thank all our Patreon members. I would also like to let any of you know that have ever contributed to the show to know that your support is appreciated. Our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep the pressure on me to make more episodes and gain access to our Alaska Airlines Flight 261, a Patreon-only episode, and the PCPC theme song in its entirety. Thanks again to the Patreon crew. Secondly, thank you to BetterHelp for their continued sponsorship of this show. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling network. BetterHelp is to therapy what Uber is to car rides. It's therapy made easy for the 21st century. You can make counseling appointments around your work schedule to fit your unique needs. No more dealing with traffic or parking or spending money on gasoline. You can engage in virtual therapy sessions from the comfort of your own home. BetterHelp's trained professionals can assist you with achieving long-term goals and make sure you're practicing healthy mental habits. To learn more and save 10% on your first month, visit betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again to BetterHelp. Lastly, I like to mention at the top of each episode that I'm not a professional pilot. My motivation for starting this podcast was to address anxieties that I had surrounding flying, I reasoned that if I learned a little bit more about accidents from the past and how these incidents led to improvements in air safety, maybe my nervousness around flying would decrease over time. We realize that often these accidents we discuss involve the serious injury or death of someone's mother, father, sister, or brother. We in no way want to come across as cavalier when discussing these incidents. We just think that each incident is a historical event worth discussing. We find it interesting that each accident resulted in modifications and improvements to our air travel system and helped shape it into the safe and reliable mode of transportation that it is today. All right, let's get started, shall we? Southwest Airlines Flight 1455 was a scheduled flight from McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas, Nevada to Hollywood Burbank Airport in Burbank, California, during the early evening of Sunday, March 5th, in the year 2000. The plane used for Flight 1455 was a Boeing 737-300 series aircraft. The Boeing 737-300 is part of the second generation of the Boeing 737 family. In 1968, Boeing released the original 737 with the 100 and 200 series variants. 16 years later... Boeing released what came to be known as the 737 Classic, or the second chapter in the Boeing 737 story. This second generation of the 737 featured new CFM-56 turbofan engines that were more fuel-efficient and less noisy than the Pratt & Whitney engines that were on the original 737 planes. These new engines were large, which created a problem for designers because the original 737's wings sat fairly close to the ground. This issue, the large size of the engines, was overcome by two things. First, designers pushed the engines ahead of the plane's wings. Instead of having the engine sit below the wings, they receded ahead of the wing. This allowed for more distance between the ground and the engine, Secondly, the new engines were designed with a non-circular air intake design. I'm sure many of you have seen these engines before. The bottom of the engine looks like it was smushed and flattened a little bit. This also helped allow for more space between the ground and the engine. The 737-300 was a narrow-body plane with 6 abreast seating, Anywhere from 126 to 149 passengers could be accommodated on the plane, depending on the passenger cabin layout. The 300 series aircraft was first released to the commercial market in November 1984. Over the 15 years that the 737-300s were built by Boeing, just over 1,100 planes were manufactured and delivered to airlines. The plane used for Southwest Flight 1455 was was delivered to an airline in the UK named Orion Airways in January 1985. The plane then moved on to Britannia Airways in January 1989 before eventually joining the Southwest fleet in June 1994. So at the time of the incident in March 2000, this plane was just over 15 years old. The captain of flight 1455 was Captain Howard Peterson. Born in Waltham, Massachusetts, Captain Peterson spent much of his childhood in the Terrace Park neighborhood just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. He attended Miami of Ohio for his college education and joined the U.S. Air Force after graduation where he learned to fly planes. He received his rating for the 737 in 1976 and flew as a first officer for an Alaskan airline during the late 1970s. Captain Peterson was hired by Southwest Airlines in July 1988. At the time of the incident, he was 52 years old and had been with Southwest just shy of 12 years. Captain Peterson was based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. He was described by another Southwest captain as congenial, mild-mannered, and someone who got along well with everyone. At the time of the incident, Captain Peterson had around 11,000 total flight hours and 9,870 hours flying 737s. The first officer of Flight 1455 was First Officer Jeffrey Irwin. First Officer Irwin was 43 years old at the time of the incident. Based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, First Officer Irwin had also come up through the U.S. Air Force. He served active duty for 12 years flying F-15 fighter planes and later served in the U.S. Air Force Reserves. First Officer Irwin was hired by Southwest Airlines in November 1996, so at the time of the incident, he had been with the airline for just over three years. In the incident report, other Southwest captains described him as an above-average co-pilot with good aviation skills and good judgment. First Officer Irwin had 5,022 flight hours, 2,522 hours flying 737s. There were three flight attendants working Flight 1455 for a total flight crew of five. 137 passengers were seated in the passenger cabin for a total of 142 souls on board Flight 1455. The weather in the Las Vegas area on March 5, 2000 was cold for the desert, with temperatures hovering around 50 degrees for most of the day. Winds blew between 20 to 25 miles per hour, with gusts blowing up to 35, and there were rain showers throughout the surrounding area. On the morning of March 5th, 1st Officer Irwin, who is based in the Salt Lake City area, woke up around 8 a.m. and left for the Salt Lake City International Airport around 10. 1st Officer Irwin hitched a ride from Salt Lake City to Las Vegas on a Southwest flight that left Salt Lake around 11.20 a.m., and he arrived in Vegas one hour and 25 minutes later at 12.45 p.m. Captain Peterson, who is based in the Las Vegas area, woke up around 8.30 a.m. and spent his morning jogging, working out, and having breakfast. He left his Las Vegas home around 1.30 in the afternoon, arriving at McCarran International about 2 p.m. Southwest Airlines Flight 1455 was originally supposed to take off from Las Vegas at 2.45 p.m. local time, but due to the heavy winds and rain in the vicinity, the plane was delayed for over two hours. Captain Peterson and First Officer Irwin met on their way to the gate inside the Las Vegas airport. The plane used for Flight 1455 arrived in Las Vegas around 4.30 in the afternoon After being flown in from Los Angeles, again, this delay in its arrival was due to winds and rain in the Las Vegas area. After allowing passengers arriving from Los Angeles to disembark the aircraft, loading the 737-300 with new passengers boarding in Las Vegas, and after the pilots completed their pre-flight checklist, the plane pushed back from the gate at McCarran International around 4.50 p.m., roughly 20 minutes after it arrived. Following a few minutes of taxiing to get into position and receiving clearance from the tower, the engines of the 737-300 spool up and Southwest Airlines Flight 1455 blast down the runway at McCarran International, lifting off into the Las Vegas sky en route to Burbank, California. The climb out of Las Vegas is normal and uneventful. Flight attendants quickly pop up and provide drink service to passengers for their short one-hour and ten-minute flight over to Burbank. Now, the cockpit voice recorder only records the final 30 minutes of the flight. But before we hop into that, we should touch upon a little backstory. In late June 1998, so this would be a little less than two years prior to flight 1455, There was an almost catastrophic incident involving a 747 leaving San Francisco on United Airlines flight 863, a scheduled flight from SFO in San Francisco to Sydney, Australia. A fully fueled 747 takes off from SFO for a trans-Pacific flight from California to Australia. It's 10.30 p.m. at night and it's foggy out. Shortly after takeoff, the number three engine on the 747 goes down. So suddenly this heavy plane is trying to gain altitude with only three engines. One engine on the right side of the plane isn't working. The plane took off from runway 28 right at SFO, so the plane's heading towards the northwest. Due to the engine on the right side going down, there's a thrust imbalance on the plane. There's more power on the left side of the plane than on the right. And the 747 starts veering off towards the right. Problem is, when you take off from runway 28 right at SFO, there's a giant mountain to your right, San Bruno Mountain. So we've got a 747 full of fuel and 307 human beings on board. The plane is trying to climb. They lost an engine on the right side. And the plane is suddenly gliding to the right, headed towards a massive mountain and struggling to gain altitude. The first officer of this flight was in control during takeoff, and this was only his second takeoff in a real 747 in the previous year. First officer makes the mistake of trying to correct for the plane's rightward trajectory by steering his control column or yoke to the left. Planes going to the right. He thinks to himself, hey, I want to go left. So he turns the yoke to the left. This applies the left aileron and raises the spoilers on the left wing, making it harder for the 747 to gain altitude when it's heading ever closer to a mountain. Suddenly the stick shakers activated and the plane's on the verge of stalling, still struggling to gain altitude and still moving in the direction of San Bruno Mountain. In response to the stall warning, the first officer pushes the control column forward to drop the nose of the plane only to have the ground proximity warning start going off in the cockpit with pull up, pull up echoing throughout the space. First officer pulls on his control column and the 747 clears and misses San Bruno Mountain by only about a hundred feet. The plane got so close to the ground that it disappeared from air traffic control's radar screens. Residents in the area called into local authorities complaining of noise. Some people thought that there was an earthquake occurring. Car alarms in the surrounding neighborhoods were going off like crazy. Luckily, in the cockpit were two other pilots that were shouting directions at the first officer. The plane made it out over the Pacific Ocean, dumped fuel, and safely returned to SFO. Apparently the big mistake that the first officer made was that he should have relied on his rudder to correct the rightward trajectory of the plane instead of applying the left aileron by turning his control column to the left. By trying to turn to the left, this caused the spoilers to be raised, which increased drag, did not cease the plane's rightward direction, and made it harder for the 747 to gain altitude. So this incident on United 863 was widely publicized in 1999. It really highlighted the lack of experience that some commercial pilots had had and fueled conversation that too many pilots lack real-world flying skills or are maybe too reliant on simulators for their training. So back to the flight that we're covering today, Southwest Airlines Flight 1455. Well, the CVR for Flight 1455 starts up at 5.43 p.m., about 40 minutes after they took off from Las Vegas. Flight 1455 is more than halfway through its journey to Burbank, and the pilots in the cockpit are just talking shop. Captain Peterson's discussing how he likes working for Southwest Airlines compared to the other available options for commercial pilots, but he thinks pilot wages should be higher. It's a pretty relatable conversation that I'm sure many of us would be having with our coworkers at our own jobs about whatever industry we're involved in. First Officer Irwin then steers the conversation to another topic, saying, My commander flies, uh, is a first officer on the 7 4 for Northwest. I guess they show the tapes, play the tapes of the United out of uh, San Fran. Captain Peterson says, Ah, that 47? First Officer Irwin adds, I guess those tapes were just Captain Peterson continues, Ah man, that had to be really scary. So the two pilots are thirty minutes outside of Burbank, and they're discussing the United Flight eight sixty three incident that we just briefly summarized a minute ago. First Officer Irwin says, I guess they had a had a I think a Czech airman, you know, they've two crew members and then they got a third guy all sitting up there. Captain Peterson adds I heard it was these two guys that saved them. I heard the captain kind of froze, and the first officer wasn't doing everything wrong. First Officer Irwin replies, The first officer had no idea what was going on. The captain froze. One of the guys in the back was yelling, you know, pull up, pull up. He continues, Finally, the captain came on and kicked the rudder. Someone was yelling, rudder, rudder, rudder. And finally, the captain came on really late. Captain Peterson replies, uh, well, I think United learn a lesson, though. I think they're beginning to say, all right, instead of just sending these guys back every three months to do a couple in the simulator, they're going to give them a little more training, keep them a little more current, maybe even fly and land the airplane once in a while. Who knows? First Officer Irwin laughs at this joke. So it's an interesting conversation, and there's a bit of foreshadowing that takes place. Two pilots of flight 1455 are 30 minutes out from Burbank, and they're sitting in the cockpit discussing a recent flight incident and being somewhat critical of another flight crew. At 5.45 p.m., the pilots receive a radio instruction to descend and maintain flight level 200. First Officer Irwin and Captain Peterson move on from discussing flight 863. First Officer Irwin asks Captain Peterson how long he's been with Southwest, and if he started with the airline in the 80s. Captain Peterson responds, Yeah, I got here in the last class of 88, July of 88. It's kind of scary, because we've been here about three days, and we're in class. The vice president of operations at the time, is kind of a new guy. He didn't last that long. He's a professor from Texas Tech or something. He walks in, and he goes, well, he says... To be honest, we really don't want you here right now because they just returned three airplanes back to Continental. First Officer Irwin says, really? Captain Peterson continues, planes that they had been, you know, leasing from Continental, and all of a sudden Continental wanting them back. And uh, we go, oh my God, he's going he's gonna to let us go, you know. And You know, some of us, including myself, had left a decent job. And I go, damn. But he said, all right, we're going to keep you. But, you know, we were a little overstaffed that year, and they only hired, like, about 35 the next year. I mean, there was no movement at all. And I went, oh, my God, it's going to be the longest 20 years of my life. But within a year or two after that, it started getting better. So the two pilots talk about United 863 for a moment, then move on to talking about their history working for Southwest. Time is now 5.49 p.m., about 50 minutes into the flight and Los Angeles Center radios over Southwest 1455, cross one zero miles east of Palmdale at one Captain Peterson acknowledges the transmission. Los Angeles Center then tells Flight 1455 to contact Joshua Approach. Joshua Approach radios to Flight 1455 to cross Palmdale at or below 13,000 feet and cross Janney at and maintain 8,000. First Officer Irwin acknowledges this message and tells his captain that's in the box. For the next few minutes, the pilots have a discussion about which runway they think they're going to be landing on once they get to Burbank. Runway 26 runs east to west, while Runway 8 is the same strip of asphalt, but it runs from west to east. Runway 8 is crosswind, but clear of terrain for approach and is the most common runway for commercial aircraft to land on at Burbank. While the pilots are having this discussion over runways, Joshua Approach radios over. Southwest 1455, start your descent now, please. Traffic's going to be crossing your path here in about 20 miles and reduce now to 250 knots for sequence. So Approach tells them, watch out for traffic and reduce your speed. Time is now 5.54 p.m., and Captain Peterson tells First Officer Irwin to plan on an approach to Runway 33 for the moment, and he also requests that the First Officer go through the approach descent checklist when he gets a chance. 20 seconds later, a flight attendant enters the cockpit and asks the pilots if they would like anything. Captain Peterson asks for a cup of ice, and First Officer Irwin requests coffee if any is available. Then the first officer and flight attendant talk about the air conditioning in the passenger cabin for a brief moment. First officer Irwin says to his captain, check your orange bug, Howard. If you're happy, I'm happy. The orange bug he's referring to might be his airspeed indicator or heading indicator. Captain Peterson responds to first officer Irwin's question if he's happy by saying, no, I'm not. Okay, now I am. Thank you. First Officer Irwin completes the approach descent checklist and mentions that he's heard that Southwest Airlines is looking at 737-800 planes and considering adding it to the Southwest fleet. Captain Peterson says, really? First Officer Irwin continues, I've heard, you know, that the new hangar they're building in Dallas, the maintenance hangar, will hold an 800. Captain Peterson responds, ah, wouldn't that be neat? 800s. Is that what American and Delta have, 800s, the bigger airplane? First Officer Irwin answers, yes. Delta flies 800s. American flies 800s. Captain Peterson says, I've been on them. I've jump-seated a few times on them. They got a few more gadgets for the air conditioning and stuff, so that's really nice. First Officer Irwin agrees. That is nice. Captain Peterson continues, There's a couple other little things, but it carries a lot more people. They said they're having a hard time getting them down because they're so heavy and stopping them, too, because they're just, just big, heavy planes. So this is a second point of foreshadowing in the conversation that takes place between the two pilots. First, they talk about United Flight 863 and how that flight crew wasn't prepared for the incident they encountered. And now they're talking about big, heavy planes and how difficult it is to slow down and stop a heavy plane after landing. Just a little something to think about going forward. At 5.58 p.m., First Officer Irwin radios Burbank, 1455, and there's no response. Jokingly, Captain Peterson says, Okay, too low, I guess. We'll just be a surprise. Flight 1455 passes through 10,000 feet on their way to 8,000. A few minutes later, Joshua Approach passes Flight 1455 off to SoCal Approach. SoCal Approach tells Flight 1455 to expect an ILS landing on Runway 8 at Burbank. Time is now 6.03 p.m., a little over one hour into the flight. SoCal Approach radios Southwest 1455, Turn left, heading 190, vector to final, descend, and maintain 6000. First Officer Irwin confirms the instructions, and a minute later, SoCal Approach radios southwest 1455, maintain 230 or greater till advised, please. So Approach is telling 1455 to maintain 230 knots or greater until advised to do otherwise. Captain Peterson responds... 230 knots or greater, southwest 1455. The reason for this speed instruction is that the controller is trying to sequence planes into Burbank, and they're trying to create adequate space between the approaching planes. First Officer Irwin tells Captain Peterson that given their landing configuration with the flaps at 40, their target airspeed on landing should be 138 knots. He continues that winds are at 6 knots, and that the runway that they'll be landing on is runway 8. About 20 seconds after this exchange, SoCal Approach radios over, Southwest 1455, turn left heading 160. Captain Peterson says to his first officer, heading 160. He said he wants 230 knots or greater for a while. SoCal Approach radios, Southwest, 1455, descend and maintain 5,000. If you'd like the visual approach, you will be following company right now at your 1 o'clock and 12 miles, turning onto the final out of 4,600. So approach is telling the pilots that another Southwest Airlines plane is 12 miles ahead of them. First Officer Irwin replies, All right, down to 5,000, looking for company, 1455. Time's now 6.06 p.m. First Officer Irwin asks Captain Peterson, do you want the visual if we find everybody? Captain Peterson responds, yeah, I think so. We'll wait just a second. I want to get through these clouds, but I think the visual will be fine. Captain Peterson announces over the plane's PA, flight attendants, please secure the cabin for arrival. One minute later at 6.07 p.m., SoCal Approach Radio's Southwest 1455, descend and maintain 3,000, companies over Van Nuys now at 3,000. Captain Peterson establishes a visual on the other southwest plane ahead of them. First Officer Irwin radios, Southwest 1455, company in sight. SoCal Approach responds, Southwest 1455, cross Van Nuys at or above 3,000, cleared visual approach, runway 8. Around 15 seconds after this transmission, flight 1455 passes through 4,000 on their way to 3,000. Captain Peterson calls for flaps to be set at 5. At 6.09 p.m., SoCal Approach Radios, Southwest 1455, contact Burbank Tower 118.7, so long. Five seconds later, Captain Peterson says, gear down and the sound of the landing gear being extended is heard on the CVR. The tower at Burbank radios, Southwest 1455, Burbank Tower. First Officer Irwin responds, Burbank Tower, this is 1455 with you. Visual 8. Captain Peterson calls for flaps to be set at 15. Burbank Tower radios, Southwest 1455. Wind 210 at 6. Runway 8, cleared to land. First Officer Irwin says, clear to land, Runway 8, 1455. So the time is 6.10 p.m., one hour and ten minutes into the flight. Flight 1455 is descending through 3,000 feet and has just been cleared to make a visual landing at Burbank on Runway 8. Six minutes ago, the approach controller told them to maintain a speed of 230 knots or greater. First Officer Irwin told Captain Peterson that given their configuration, that their target landing speed should be 138 knots. Captain Peterson calls out for flaps to be set at 25. 23 seconds later, the ground proximity warning system starts alerting. Sink rate. Sink rate. Signaling that the 737 is approaching the ground at too fast of a rate. Captain Peterson says, ah and the sink rate alert continuously sounds off throughout the cockpit. Captain Peterson says, flaps 30, just put it down, as the sink rate alert continues. Captain Peterson says in reference to the flaps, put it to 40, it won't go, I know that, it's alright. Final descent checklist. First Officer Irwin radios to Burbank Tower. Tower, this is 1455, Confirm cleared to land 8. Six seconds later, the ground proximity warning system switches from sink rate, sink rate, to whoop, whoop, pull up, whoop, whoop, pull up, as the 737 sinks to the ground at a fast rate and high rate of speed. Despite the whoop, whoop, pull up alerts sounding in the cockpit, Captain Peterson says, that's all right. Two seconds before 6.11 p.m., Southwest Airlines Flight 1455 touches down on Runway 8, traveling at a speed of 182 knots, close to 209 miles per hour. Seconds after touchdown, Captain Peterson applies the brakes and deploys the thrust reversers. First Officer Irwin says, need any help? First Officer Irwin and Captain Peterson both slam on the brakes as hard as they can, but the 737 keeps blasting down the wet runway at Burbank. Captain Peterson turns his control column slightly to the right, looking to find more space to slow the plane down as he applies maximum pressure on the brakes. Seeing the approaching metal fence through the cockpit window, Captain Peterson exclaims, Expletive, Howard, you expletive, expletive. 22 seconds after touching down on runway 8, Flight 1455 slams through a metal blast fence at just below 40 miles per hour. After hitting the metal fence, the 737 continues on and crashes through an outer perimeter wall surrounding the airfield at Burbank. Captain Peterson says, My fault, and the plane continues ahead, crossing onto a Burbank Street, North Hollywood Way. The 737 strikes a car with a woman and her four-year-old daughter inside before eventually coming to rest on North Hollywood Way in front of a Chevron gas station located only 39 feet away. As the plane comes to a rest, Captain Peterson repeats, my fault, and radios over the PA, folks, remain seated, remain seated, we're all right. Burbank Tower radios, response coming now. The flight attendants start yelling instructions to passengers in the passenger cabin. The emergency slide at the front of the plane inflates inside the plane, during the accident sequence, and the jump seat for two flight attendants at the front of the plane partially collapses. After the plane comes to a rest, Captain Peterson says aloud in the cockpit, well, there goes my career. Captain Peterson continues, you stupid expletive expletive, talking to himself. 25 seconds later, Captain Peterson says, we're all right. Yep, we're all right. Yeah, that's all right. I'll get it in a minute. Thanks. 30 seconds later, Captain Peterson radios, Tower, uh, Southwest, 1455, can you hear us? Tower responds, 1455, Burbank Tower. Captain Peterson radios again, Tower, Southwest, 1455, can you hear us? The tower responds again, Southwest, 1455, affirmative, I can hear you. Captain says, yeah, you better send the emergency equipment over, uh, uh, we went through the barrier. Burbank Tower answers, affirmative, they should be over there already. Captain Peterson says, thank you. Burbank Tower says, they're coming up Hollywood Way, sir. They'll be coming up on your left wing. Captain Peterson says, Roger. Burbank Tower repeats, Southwest 1455, they're coming up now, right off your left now, Hollywood Way. Captain Peterson signs off saying, okay, thank you. We're evacuating the aircraft at this time. The tower responds with a roger. And that's the end of the CVR for Southwest Airlines Flight 1455. The nose of the plane was sheared off during the collision with the fence and perimeter wall, along with the tip of the left wing of the plane. The front landing gear was pushed backwards into the electronics bay after it collapsed. Out of the 142 souls on board, two sustained serious injuries and 41 passengers, along with Captain Peterson, sustained minor injuries. Luckily, there were no injuries on the ground, even though the 737 struck one car containing two occupants.
0: Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Mini health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes.
1: and interviews with Captain Peterson, First Officer Irwin, and air traffic controllers on duty that day, investigators identified a number of factors that added up to Flight 1455 overrunning the runway at Burbank Airport on March 5, 2000. First, investigators determined that the pilots should have used their onboard performance computer to gain more information on the proper landing speeds how much distance on the runway they would need, and the proper configuration for the plane to make a successful and safe landing. Apparently, if a tailwind exists, or the plane is super heavy with a lot of fuel on board, or you're landing on a runway that's relatively short, Southwest Airlines' policy dictates that a flight crew should use their onboard performance computer to gain extra assistance and information with landing the plane. Runway 8 at Burbank Airport is super short, just over 6000 feet long. Just for comparison, Runway 25 right at LAX is over 12000 feet long. So Burbank's Runway 8 is less than half of the length of Runway 25 right at LAX. There is literally a lot less room for air when landing at Burbank. So that's reason one why the flight crew should have used their onboard performance computer. Reason two, there was a six-knot tailwind present. So on top of coming into an airport with a short runway where you have limited asphalt to stop, there was also winds pushing at the back of the plane, making it even harder to slow down. Third, the maximum landing weight for a Boeing 737 is 114,000 pounds. Flight 1455's weight was 113,425 pounds at landing, only 575 pounds beneath the maximum landing weight threshold. So you have a plane that's as heavy as it can possibly be for landing, landing on a short runway with no extended runway safety area where the plane could slow down if it can't stop by the end of the runway. It's a wet runway, because it rained that day, and there's a tailwind pushing at the back of the plane, making it harder to stop. For all of these reasons, the pilots should have sought out more information and more assistance with their approach and landing by using their onboard performance computer. Another big factor in this incident was the speed this plane was traveling at upon touchdown. First Officer Irwin calls out the proper landing speed during their approach, 138 knots, which is roughly 158 miles per hour. If the speed of the plane remains excessive during the approach, the first officer is supposed to call out verbally and draw attention to this excessive speed for the captain. First Officer Irwin stated in an interview that he pointed at the airspeed indicator with his hand during the approach, trying to direct the captain's attention to their airspeed, But verbalizing airspeed concerns might have been more effective in raising alarm to the issue of airspeed for the captain. Speaking of the speed of the plane, there's an interesting moment when, during the approach, the air traffic controller tells flight 1455 to maintain a speed of 230 knots or higher. The air traffic controller is trying to keep a number of planes adequately spaced apart from one another, while they're getting sequenced for approach and landing captain peterson even mentions at one point to first officer Irwin that they've been instructed to maintain 230 knots for a bit this command from air traffic control may have been lodged in his brain a little too much this idea that he's been instructed to keep his speed high air traffic control cleared flight 1455 for a visual approach to burbank at 609 p.m two minutes before landing, and this clearance for visual approach canceled the speed restriction. But a more explicit cancellation of the speed restriction earlier in their approach, when the speed command was no longer necessary, would have been helpful for the flight crew to reduce their speed ahead of landing. Again, the target speed for landing was 138 knots, which is 158 miles per hour, and flight 1455's actual landing speed was 182 knots, 209 miles per hour. Basically, the plane was traveling 50 miles per hour faster than it should have been traveling at touchdown, and this made stopping all the more difficult. Another thing that investigators noted was the lack of altitude callouts from the first officer. Southwest Airlines procedures call for altitude callouts at 1,000 feet. 500, 400, 300, 200, 100, 50, 30, and 10 feet before landing. First officer did not make these callouts. If he did, it may have alerted the crew to their excessive sink rate and the high speed that the plane was traveling at. They may have realized hey, we're gliding to the ground way too quickly and coming in too hot. Our approach is not stable and we should perform a go-around and approach the airport at a slower speed and more gradual sink rate next time. Information from the flight data recorder showed that the angle that Flight 1455 took to Runway 8 at Burbank was 7 degrees. The typical approach to Runway 8 is at 3 degrees, So flight 1455 was going 50 miles an hour faster than it should have been and was dropping out of the sky at a seven degree angle compared to a more gradual and safe angle of three degrees. In post-incident interviews, First Officer Irwin said that he noticed that the plane was traveling too fast, sinking too quickly, and the ground proximity warnings were going off, but he thought that Captain Peterson was taking corrective action, so he did not call for a go-around. Another big factor was where the plane touched down on Runway 8. As we mentioned earlier, Runway 8 at Burbank is 6,032 feet long. Southwest Airlines Flight Operations Manual calls for touchdown of the aircraft between 1,000 feet and 1,500 feet past the start of the runway. Flight 1455 touched down at 2,150 feet past the start of the runway. This only gave them 4,000 feet to slow down a 737 that is flying heavy, almost at its maximum landing weight, traveling at 209 miles per hour, 50 miles per hour faster than it should have been going for landing, with a six-knot tailwind descending at a seven-degree angle, and the runway is wet, so braking is not going to be as efficient and effective as if they were landing on a dry runway. So the heavy plane traveling too fast with a tailwind present, landing 2,000 feet past the runway threshold on a short, wet runway to begin with, a runway without a safety runoff area, all added up to flight 1455 crashing through Burbank Airport's perimeter wall, coming to rest on a local street in front of a gas station. The investigation report was also a bit critical towards air traffic control for positioning flight 1455 in a difficult spot to make a successful landing. Investigators looked at how planes were typically directed into Burbank Airport and found that most planes were vectored to intercept the final approach course anywhere from 9 to 15 nautical miles westward of the airport. Flight 1455 was vectored in by air traffic control at only 8 miles away from the airport. This gave the flight crew very little time to prepare for landing, get their speed down, and take a proper and safe angle in to land at runway 8. The probable cause of the incident in the NTSB report is as follows. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the flight crew's excessive airspeed, and flight path angle during the approach and landing and its failure to abort the approach when stabilized approach criteria were not met. Contributing to the accident was the controller's positioning of the airplane in such a manner as to leave no safe options for the flight crew other than a go-around maneuver. One other notable safety aspect of the report that I thought was interesting was the inflatable slide incident. While the accident was unfolding and the 737 was crashing through the metal fence and perimeter wall, the inflatable escape slide, used for emergency passenger evacuations, inflated inside the front of the plane. The inflatable slide blocked the two exits at the front of the plane and prevented the two flight attendants, also at the front of the plane, from being able to assist passengers exiting the plane once the plane came to a complete stop. This could have been a major issue if the plane had caught fire. If there was a fire, there would have been a bottleneck of passengers trying to make it to the back of the plane and exit, since the forward exits were completely cut off. So how did the crash of Southwest Airlines Flight 1455 make flying safer for all of us today? Well, one simple thing we should mention since we just touched upon it. Investigators determined that the latch brackets... Used for the cover of the inflatable slide, were not strong or reliable on the 737 300 through 500 series planes. Investigators recommended that the latch brackets be replaced on all Boeing 737 300 series through 500 series planes with stronger, more effective latch brackets already in use on Boeing 737 600 through 900 series planes. This change means that if another similar crash were to occur, it's less likely that the emergency slide will inflate inside the plane and passenger access to the forward exits in the event of an emergency will be maintained. The big improvement to air safety that resulted from this crash was the spotlight that Flight 1455 shone on the danger of runway overruns in the airline industry. Especially at airports with short runways, Pilots needed a buffer zone, or the development of some new technology to help assist them with slowing down a plane when a mistake occurs, or poor judgment during the approach and landing is exercised. Enter EMAS, or the Engineered Materials Arrester System. We've talked about EMAS on previous episodes. EMAS is essentially an area of collapsible concrete blocks at the end of the runway that absorb energy and help slow down a plane that overruns the runway. It's kind of like if you're riding a bike along a dirt path, and then suddenly you hit a bunch of thick mud, your tires get stuck, and you lose your speed, and you really can't go anywhere. It's very similar for the plane. As the plane crosses onto the emas surface, the concrete buckles under the weight of the plane, and the tires of the plane get stuck in the concrete. The plane loses energy and speed easily. The NTSB recommended that airports with runways that lack a 1,000-foot runway safety area install EMAS to increase safety against runway overruns. An EMAS surface was installed at Burbank Airport to the tune of $4 million. Each concrete block costs upwards of $5,000. It's not inexpensive material. Just as an example, the EMAS area is 170 feet long and 350 feet wide at the end of runway 8 in Burbank now. So that's how Flight 1455 made flying safer for all of us. Now, EMAS is widely used at airports throughout the world, including Burbank Airport, and the dangers of a runway overrun have been decreased. Additionally, airlines operating 737, 300 through 500 series planes installed better latch brackets on their inflatable slides, so passengers can maintain access to the forward exits during an emergency. Also, since the flight attendant's seat collapsed, a more strict inspection of jump seat bracket assemblies occurs now. So those are three ways that Flight 1455 made flying safer for all of us today. Typically, this would be our discussion period, but since this is a solo flight in lieu of discussion time on flight 1455, I just thought I would touch upon a couple interesting aspects of the incident. First off, this was just an accident waiting to happen. Runway 8 at Burbank's only 6,000 feet long. Inevitably, some commercial plane was going to come in too hot and break through the airport barrier and draw the world's attention to the need for more space or a new technology to assist planes with slowing down. Since EMAS was installed at Burbank Airport at the end of runway 8, it's already prevented two accidents, one of which was on board Southwest Airlines Flight 278 on December 6, 2018, over 18 and a half years after Flight 1455. Southwest Airlines Flight 278 was a flight from Oakland to Burbank with 117 souls on board. The plane was a Boeing 737-700 series aircraft. It was an early morning flight with the plane landing at Burbank just after 9 a.m. The conditions for landing were very similar to flight 1455. Once again, there were rains in the area, so the runway was slick. The plane landed with 12 to 16 knot tailwinds. The pilots landed the plane 1,000 feet further down the runway than they should have, And there's also an interesting conversation that takes place between the two pilots of flight 278 before landing. First officer of flight 278 said to his captain before landing, yeah, it's wet with a tailwind and an expletive short runway. The captain responds to this comment with awesome before his first officer continued, what could possibly go wrong? You're going to have to earn your money, man. The two pilots then laughed and proceeded to run the 737-700 straight into the incredibly expensive EMAS area at the end of runway 8. So I mentioned this uh, Southwest flight from 2018 because it's important to point out that we should probably all thank Captain Peterson and First Officer Irwin for being the fall guys for an inevitable accident. It's easy to finger point and cast blame, but because of flight 1455, Measures were taken to make overruns safer and less dangerous. It's always been a central theme of this podcast that accidents of the past have made flying safer for us in the present. Flight 1455 made landing safer for everyone at Burbank and everyone at airports where EMAS is installed. If flight 1455 hadn't happened, we'd probably be doing an episode today on flight 278 from 2018 and how it blasted through the perimeter wall. So I just thought that was worth noticing. Another interesting aspect of flight 1455 is that apparently someone at some point thought it was a good idea to put a gas station at the end of runway eight. Maybe the gas station was there before the airport was built. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, thanks to flight 1455, the people of Burbank had an aha moment and decided that maybe having a gas station at the end of a runway that 737s land on all day, every day was a bad idea. I know Hollywood's nearby, and a lot of action movies are filmed in the area with large explosions. Maybe they thought someday it would be a great film set, but I'm happy to report that the gas station has since been closed and turned into a park. Southwest Flight 1455 was the first major accident in Southwest Airlines' 29-year history at the time. When the plane crashed, there were still around 1,000 gallons of fuel in the fuel tanks, and 10 gallons of fuel leaked out of the plane afterwards. Oh. Everyone was very fortunate that a fire didn't ensue, especially considering the inflatable slide inside the plane blocking the front exits. Airport shuttle driver Abayomi Amalewu saw the 737 break through the airport wall and crash onto Hollywood Way. He was quoted as saying, We saw it was going to crash into the gas station, and the gas station was going to get into a flame. That's why we were like, man, is that plane going to fall on us? Amalewu said that he and a few other shuttle drivers rushed to the plane and assisted passengers that were climbing down from the wings of the 737. Passenger Kevin McCoy, a business executive based in the Los Angeles area, said, I felt like we were a jet bomber. We were coming down so fast, so steep. I had never experienced an approach like that. It was almost like a sudden dive. We were really cruising. Another passenger, Lara Gorman, said, It was going too fast. It started to feel like it was tipping, and then I felt a crashing, and I closed my eyes, and we had stopped. Jody Targun, another passenger on board Flight 1455, said, Like Jell-O. My legs are like jello. Pretty scary, as she was interviewed outside the airport. Looking back over the CVR dialogue, I think one of the most iconic lines from Flight 1455 was Captain Peterson saying, Well, there goes my career. I did not enjoy reading it because it feels very sad and human and honest and was the result of a mistake. There was no maliciousness on anybody's part. I did find that point towards the end of the CVR when Captain Peterson is talking to the Tower about emergency services. Pretty funny, though. It seemed like the Tower was trolling him for a second when Captain Peterson asked for emergency services. Tower basically replied, you're parked on Hollywood Way, sir. They'll be coming up on your left side. Look out your left window. We'll be driving down the street that you're currently parked on. It must have been a bit uncomfortable. I tried to point them out as they occurred during the story, but there were a few noticeable moments of foreshadowing in the dialogue between Captain Peterson and First Officer Irwin. Point one occurs right at the beginning of the CVR, where both pilots are discussing and questioning the actions of the United Airlines Flight 863 crew. It's a bit ironic that they were talking about how the pilots of Flight 863 were not trained well enough. I think Captain Peterson says something like, they should take off and land the plane once in a while. And then 30 minutes later, they crash the plane they're responsible for flying onto a Burbank Street. The second point of foreshadowing was when the two pilots were discussing how Southwest Airlines was considering buying larger planes, the 737-800s. I believe Captain Peterson or First Officer Irwin remarks that the 737-800 planes are heavy, and there's difficulty stopping such heavy planes. And wouldn't you know it, but in less than 30 minutes, the two pilots had to contend with exactly what they were discussing, the difficulty of getting a heavy plane flying at maximum landing weight to slow down. First Officer Irwin and Captain Peterson were initially fired on July 17th, 2004 months after the incident. First Officer Irwin was eventually reinstated and continued to fly for Southwest while Captain Howard Peterson also saw his firing reversed and he was allowed to retire. Captain Howard Peterson died unexpectedly on January 9th, 2021 in Las Vegas, Nevada, I hope he rests in peace and we appreciate his contribution to aviation history. And I think that's going to wrap it up for Southwest Airlines Flight 1455. Now for a few stories from the world of airline news. International Airlines Group, a multinational airline holding company, which has British Airways, Iberia, and Aer Lingus under its control, announced this past week that they have struck a deal with Boeing to purchase 50 Boeing MAX planes, with an additional option for 100 planes in the future. IAG will purchase a combination of 50 737 MAX 10s and 737 MAX 8s. Luis Gallego, IAG's chief executive, stated, The addition of new Boeing 737s is an important part of IAG's short-haul fleet renewal. These latest generation aircraft are more fuel-efficient than those that they will replace, and in line with our commitment to achieving net-zero carbon emissions by 2050. Despite issues with the initial 737 MAX rollout and the crashes of Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, Boeing has quietly been increasing its orders and deliveries for the new MAX planes. So far, 768 Boeing MAX planes have been delivered to airlines over the past five years, and Boeing currently has 4,800 orders for MAX planes as of April 2022. 74 Boeing MAX planes are currently in service with Southwest Airlines. United Airlines currently has 46 MAX planes in their fleet. Turkish Airlines has 27 MAX planes in their current fleet. So it seems as though all the negative attention that the MAX planes were associated with in 2018 and 2019 has finally subsided. The MAX planes are part of airline fleets worldwide. Airlines are ordering more MAX planes each day. And luckily, there haven't been any more MCAS issues or accidents. Here's to hoping Boeing keeps successfully rolling along. For our next item, and on a sad note, on March 21st, 2022... China Eastern Airlines Flight 5735 crashed in southern China, killing all 132 souls on board. Videos were widely circulated online, showing the plane in a near-vertical dive before impacting the ground. Flight 5735's impact with the Earth left a 65-foot-deep crater where it struck The flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder were sent from China to the NTSB in Washington, D.C. for analysis. In mid May, reports in the Wall Street Journal and ABC News revealed that American investigators believe the Boeing 737 800 series plane was intentionally crashed, most likely by one of the pilots. Investigators pointed out that the landing gear was still up and the flaps were not deployed during the dive which both display that the pilots were not attempting to make any emergency landing. Flight 5735 took off from Kunming around 1.15 p.m. local time, climbed to 29,100 feet over the first hour of the flight, and then suddenly plummeted downwards to 7,400 feet before climbing back to 8,600 feet and then diving a second time into the Earth. Reports say that the engines were never pulled back to idle and there's no evidence of mechanical issues with the plane. Investigators have been examining the personal life of the younger pilot on board that may have been struggling with undisclosed mental health issues prior to the crash. It's a very sad story out of China, and I hope the aviation industry builds a better infrastructure for pilots to come forward and speak out about any mental health issues they might be contending with without fear of losing their paychecks while they receive necessary attention and care. We'll keep an eye on more developments concerning Flight 5735 going forward. In the world of unruly passengers comes a story from London, England. Alfie and Kenneth Springthorpe were two brothers on board a Jet 2 flight from London to Crete, Greece, that participated in a fistfight with one another mid-flight. Apparently, the two brothers snuck two bottles of vodka onto the plane and drank one and a half of them. One brother became so intoxicated that he urinated on his younger brother, which resulted in a physical confrontation between the two drunk individuals. The Jet 2 flight was diverted to Corfu, where both brothers were removed from the plane. The unplanned stop caused a a three-and-a-half-hour delay for other passengers. On top of being arrested by the Greek police, the two men were hit with a 50,000-pound fine and received a lifetime ban from the airline Jet 2. That really just doesn't seem like a pleasurable way to begin a Greek vacation. Can you imagine making plans for a trip, booking an airline ticket, packing a suitcase, getting a ride to the airport, going through security, all just to drink one and a half bottles of vodka on a plane and pee on your brother? I mean, if they had just stuck to water, they'd be sitting on a beach in Greece and 50,000 pounds richer. Anyway, use your brain next time, boys. Use your brain. Our final item is a much-needed feel-good story to end on. An Oklahoma City-based couple, Pam and Jeremy Salda, recently decided to plan a trip to Las Vegas to get married. The two had been dating for the previous two years, and they booked flights from Oklahoma City to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport and then had a connecting flight from Dallas-Fort Worth to Las Vegas. The plan was to make it to Las Vegas in time to make their April 24th, 9 p.m. appointment at a Las Vegas chapel to exchange their vows. Well, unfortunately, the weather was uncooperative on April 24th, and once the couple landed in Dallas-Fort Worth, they discovered that their connecting flight to Las Vegas had been canceled. Dejected, the couple discussed their options of how they were going to get to Las Vegas in time for their chapel appointment, of which there were none. Another passenger named Chris, that happened to overhear their conversation and was an ordained minister, suggested that he could help marry the couple if need be. All three searched online and discovered there was a Southwest Airlines flight leaving from a different airport in Dallas later that evening, Dallas Love Field. And eventually ending up in Vegas after a brief stop in Phoenix. The three purchased tickets for Southwest Airlines Flight 2690, hopped in an Uber, and raced across town to the other Dallas airport to board their flight. Realizing that even though they'd end up in Vegas that night, they'd still miss their chapel appointment. Pam and Jeremy decided just to get married on board Southwest Airlines Flight 2690 at 37,000 feet with Chris, the ordained minister that they randomly met in the airport, officiating the ceremony. A professional photographer that happened to be on board took photos of the event. Flight attendants decorated the cabin with toilet paper streamers. Here comes the bride was played over the intercom, and the entire flight cheered as Pam walked down the aisle of the passenger cabin. The captain of Southwest Flight 2690 even welcomed all passengers on board by saying, Welcome to Flight 2690 and the wedding of Pam and Jeremy. Later reflecting on the event, the bride, Pam, said, All these little things just fell into place. You have the right captain that was really into it, the staff was excited, Travel has just not been good lately, and it was really nice to have this happen, and it'd just be so fun and effortless and silly. People seem to really enjoy it. So congrats to Pam and Jeremy on their marriage at 37,000 feet. Forever, they'll have quite a story to share with all their friends and family. I hope they have a great life together and have many more happy flights in their near future. believe that's going to wrap it up for the 34th episode of PCPC. Thank you again to the Patreon crew. Thanks to everyone that listens to the show and leaves us reviews. We appreciate all your messages that you send to us on Twitter. We're on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. We're on Instagram at Plane Crash Podcast. And our email is Plane Crash Podcast at Gmail. Uh, remember, betterhelp.com forward slash Plane Crash Pod if you want to save 10%. I hope you all have an amazing summer. Work hard, take care of your family and your friends, go on that nice beach vacation. Take care of yourselves and your communities. Stay healthy. And I hope we all get to hang out again soon. I am going to try and make another episode as soon as I can. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.